Okay, we are um, in getting the gospel right. And I know this is last Thursday's lesson. I wanted to pick up a few uh, points before we pressed on. Um, This following verse is one that they try to insert works into salvation. Most people on this planet think that there's going to be one judgment day at the end of time and all your good works are going to be weighed against your uh, sins, the bad things you've done, and it depends on how that weight falls. It's going to depend on whether you go to heaven or be saved or whatever. The only verse that comes close to that would be this, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers only. Sins won't be mentioned there. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. That's the purpose of it, is to see if you're going to be rewarded or decorated or not. And so, uh, to be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The only thing bad is not, it's a very poor translation. The Greek word there is phaulos, P-H-A-U-L-O-S, and it means worthless, not bad. And there's a big difference between worthless and bad because bad kind of has a connotation of sin. And there is no judgment for sin because Christ has already taken that judgment for us. And this is what we kind of explain there. Uh, Acts 15.1 is one of the first places that we see the gospel coming under attack in the first century, Acts 15.1, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They acquiesced to the fact that, okay, we'll, we'll accede to the fact that Gentiles can be saved, which they didn't want to give that up, but they did. However, they still have to be circumcised if they're going to uh, be saved. And, of course, Paul would not let that pass, and there was a big uh, stink over this. They finally had a council, and it was resolved that circumcision nor anything else, no other thing other than faith alone in Christ alone, uh, is required for eternal salvation. And then uh, Acts 15.24, there were people who were unsettling uh, the the flock, and so they sent Paul and Barnabas and a few other very uh, distinguished guys to go with them to settle this. You, you, the, the fact is, you can't let these things uh, take root and grow. These are heresies, and they have to be dealt with, and Paul dealt with this, and this is giving us uh, the format to handle issues. If something crops up in a local church, if it crops up in a family, if it crops wherever it crops up, it has to be dealt with if they are trying to add works to eternal salvation. And this is what um, they did. The point is here, someone who proclaims a false gospel, that's not the time to be lazy or afraid to speak up. If it hurts feelings, if somebody gets mad, so be it. The attitude that we don't need to say anything because some other believer uh, will probably come along to correct the inaccuracy is all too pervasive these days. Each one of us are required to fall under this category of 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14 
Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all you do be done in love. This is a requirement. This is a warning and a command for every believer. We don't just pass it along and say somebody else will take care of it. Someone is, is, has the gospel wrong. We don't just say, well, somebody else will take care of it. We nip it in the bud. We stand firm for grace, for faith alone. Which brings us to this red heading here, which means this is uh, new ground we're plowing here. We're actually, I think it's one deal under here, but we'll start here. Sometimes we wonder why so many people reject the gospel, even though it's so easy to understand. And the Bible gives the answer. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. in whose case the God of this world, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. So their minds are blinded. And then we have Luke 8, 11 through 12. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. This is the sower of, and the, uh, of seeds and the reap, uh, and the, uh, where they fell on the... Some fell on good soil, some fell on the rock, some fell to the uh, ditch and so forth. And this is saying, um, the parable is this, the seed that was mentioned is the Word of God. Those seeds beside the road are those who have heard, that heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. So we have an adversary in fulfilling our mandate to witness whenever we have the opportunity. Because what we say, Satan is going to try to bring someone along, this has always been the case, and say, oh, well, yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus Christ, but that's not all. You have to be good. You can't just go around doing anything you want. You could lose your salvation. Or some would say, if that occurs, you never were saved. Begin with all these dastardly attacks. Then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, we will have the Antichrist is going to carry on Satan's strategy. And verse 9, the one, being the Antichrist who is coming, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so this is an ongoing thing. It's going to continue all the way to the uh, tribulational period. You're going to have those who are going to try to undermine the truth of God's Word. Does it stop there? After the tribulation and Jesus Christ comes at the second advent, are there still going to be those who are going to try to undermine the truth? Absolutely. We know that because of the Gog revolution that's going to take place. At the end of the millennium, there's going to be, uh, well, the Bible says it's like the sand on the seashore. There's going to be so many who are going to heed the lies of Satan and go against God's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to take care of them, of course, at that point. All right, now, we are born spiritually dead and have lived a portion of our lives walking according to the course of this world, which is dominated by Satan. 
Now, was everybody going to agree to that? We don't have any kooks in here that say that they've never sinned, right? Okay. I know we didn't. I said that mainly for the benefit of those that might be listening to this on the Internet. And I probably just made a man that probably shut it off now because I just called him a kook. Well, I hope they keep tuning in. Once a person accepts the gospel, that worldly way of thinking and behaving should change. Look at that, I said, should change. I didn't say will change, it should change. The problem is most Christians continue to think the same way because they refuse to take in doctrine consistently. They may change their behavior, but their thinking continues to be dominated by their old sin nature and our demons. So, the next verse, you can see already what I have in red, in which you formerly walked. The, the, the key word there is formerly. So when we are born again, we now have something that we didn't have before, which is a human spirit. Now we have a relationship with God. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're in Christ. Now we can understand spiritual phenomenon. And no longer is the Holy Spirit... Uh, excuse me, the old sin nature have absolute dominance over us. We don't lose our old sin nature. We continue to sin. However, it's no longer our master. Why? Well, because we have the Holy Spirit. Now we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, operate on the Holy Spirit's power, and we can produce something that no unbeliever can produce, which is divine good, something that the Holy Spirit produces through us and that is rewardable. So all these things could change. But the problem is there's so many people who don't know anything about the spiritual dynamics of the church age. Uh, they, all they know is about a little bit about, well, if you're saved, you ought to be moral. And you ought to obey the Ten Commandments. But that's about all they know. And so what they do is start changing their behavior, but it's an outward expression. It isn't coming from the inside. And you can only... You can only manage that for so long. Sooner or later, what's truly inside is going to come out. And that's when some people are shocked when you see somebody that's so pious and so Christian-like. And they talk in dulcet tones and they seem to be so humble and they always go to church and oh, they just, oh, they seem to be such a great person. And all of a sudden, the things come out. Wham! And they're striking just like a viper. And, the, and they just go from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. And you wonder, what happened? Well, it was a superficial change. The fact is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, a lot of things happen. It's the things that God does for us. And that's mentioned where? Does anybody know? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Y'all remember that? For we are, what will we become? A new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. And people say, okay, I'm going to manage that. I'm going to be a new person. And they're trying to do it all on their own. It's pseudo, it's phony, and it doesn't last. But there should be changes in your behavior. But they're not going to come overnight. What do you need? Well, you need the filling of the Holy Spirit, and most 
I don't know how many people, I don't know what the, what the percentage is, but most people who believe in Jesus Christ don't know anything about the filling of the Holy Spirit. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit? What is that? Well, it's a command. And what even makes it more complicated is that it's a command that's in the passive voice. It's not telling you to do something. It's telling you to receive something. All right, how do we receive the filling of the Holy Spirit? The empowerment of the Holy Spirit. How do we get that? Do we go out there and hustle and as a reward we get this? No. Very few Christians overall know that you have to connect 1 John 1, 9, which is post-salvational sinning, and confessing of sin means that we are what? Forgiven for those sins. No penance? No. Just forgiven for acknowledging it to God. And why is that? Because Christ has already paid for the sin. All God wants us to do is be humble and take responsibility for that sin, and boom, it's forgiven. We are back in fellowship with Him. We're right with Him, and that's when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. That's how we can be spiritual and still a carnal, which are the only two categories or the only two statuses, if you can say that, in the Christian life. Right now, you're either carnal or you are spiritual. That's why we stop each time before we start Bible class to give you a moment of silent prayer. If there's any unconfessed sins, you employ 1 John 1, 9, and bam, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you can understand the spiritual phenomenon. Now you can just, you're ready to go. Not, not many people understand that. And so they try to fulfill the Christian way of life in their own power, and you cannot do it. The Bible tells us to love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Well, doesn't necessarily, especially in the, in the country, you would think that'd be easy to do. I have a neighbor that moved in, and they live about a quarter of a mile from me. They're my closest neighbor. And I said hi to him going down the road one day, and I think that was three years ago. Well, that's good neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> when I lived in Houston, I lived in a subdivision, and I had neighbors on each side. You know, I, the ticky-tack house deal. And I knew one on each side. I knew their name, and I would say, Hi, Jim. Uh, hi, Fran. How you doing? I'm going. And that was it. Didn't know anything. And when I went to the country, I thought, Well, uh, whatever social life I have is over. Boy, was I wrong. Just because you live far apart doesn't mean... There isn't a lot of social life. There's a lot more social life in the country, at least there used to be, than there is in the city. It was for me. I mean, there was always an anniversary, a graduation, uh, a certain date. Any reason, you just let's have a party and dance, you know, the mm-bum-bum, mm-bum-bum, you know. Anyway, the whole point is it's something that God accomplishes for us and the whole thing is our life should change after we're saved, but it doesn't change overnight, overtly, in our behavior. If you had a problem with patience before you were saved, the day after you're saved, are you still going to have a problem with your patience? I can attest to that. I'll put my hand up for that one. I know that one's true. It takes time. It takes Spiritual growth through taking in the Word. That's what changes behavior. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I want you to go there, please, in your Bibles. Again, we have a verse where we have the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. Trying to gum up the works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What kind of death is that? Spiritual death, right. Now look at this. In which you formerly walked. I want you to underline formerly. Because for all of us, we should be able to say that same thing. There was a time that we were spiritually dead and we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, that would be Satan's spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, let me ask you something. What, is the, what would your behavior be like when you formerly walked according to the power of the air? Are we talking about antinomian here? Or are we talking about uh, an aesthetic uh, legalism? Which, which one? Yeah, both. It can be either one. It just depends on your own personality and your own makeup within your soul. Some people gravitate automatically. They're the ones that are going to be the rebel rousers, the hell racers, the ruffians and the, that type. And then there's going to be others that are over here, and they're up on their sanctimonious, sanctimonious high horse, and they're judging all these people that are in this antinomian group, thinking, oh, how horrible these people are. And the sins they're committing are worse than the sins over here. At least that's what Christ had. Was Christ harder on the Pharisees or the whores? The Pharisees, yeah. It's that self-righteousness. But whichever way you gravitate, that is what the Satan, the power of the Lord, is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, who are the sons of disobedience? Is that talking about believers or unbelievers? In context, look at it. Why would he bring up unbelievers at this point? It's true that unbelievers do walk according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is in working in the sons of disobedience. But look, he's talking to believers. Do you not think that believers can be sons of disobedience? Hmm? If they can be antichrist, if they can be called antichrist and enemies of the cross, can't they be called sons of disobedience? Now, it's true that unbelievers may act like sons of disobedience, but there's a lot of believers, excuse me, unbelievers that on the surface you look at their behavior and you think, boy, these are sterling examples of Christians. They have to be saved. Look at it. Look at all they do. Go to church. Go to Bible class. They go. They, they can quote Scripture to you. They're always moral. They help people. They do all of these things. They're sons of disobedience, not because of their behavior necessarily. That is part of it. The main reason that unbeliever is a son of disobedience is because 
they haven't obeyed the command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that colors everything. So here's a warning we all should heed. It's directed towards believers, but it holds true for unbelievers as well. They can be deceived by traditions of men, which prevents them from accepting the gospel. The traditions of men. What does Satan use most effectively to get people off track? Yeah, well, we can call it, you know, religion. When we use the term religion, we ha- let, let, me, let me say something about religion right now. Most of us in this room know that religion is the Satan's ace trump. Religion is man by man's effort to be accepted by God. And it, what, what separates every religion, every cult, every denomination, everything you can think of may even call themselves Christians. Uh, Mormons call themselves Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses, all those. Uh, what separates them is that they're trying to be accepted by God by their own works. And Christianity is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ based on what He has done not what we do. And so we understand that as religion. But if somebody is just talking to you and they say, oh, yeah, that's a religious person, they use the word religion, don't jump down their throat and correct them and tell them all about what religion is. It's just a term in order to explain someone is, uh, has a spiritual a- uh, attitude. Or it, Do you understand what I'm saying? Even the Bible talks about true religion. Did you know true religion is in the Bible? So we have to describe things with words. And when we use the term religion or when we hear it and we apply it to Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and all the people that are trying to work their way to heaven, we call it religion. But uh, we don't want to take that too far and be play spiritual king of the mountain, correct everyone that doesn't use it that exact same way. So there, I said my piece on religion. So don't correct people when they say it, use it a different way. They, they're just trying to describe something. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Boy, there's a lot in there. You can be taken captive through philosophy. And empty deception according to the traditions of men. Can you think of any religions that are founded on tradition rather than the Word of God? Any come to mind? Like one-fourth of the world's population is one? How many Hundreds of millions of people are captivated and caught because they trust tradition rather than the Word of God. And that is, you can see how successful that worked, and so it still works. And philosophy, it might, it might sound good, it might resonate, but it, it's just empty deception. We always have to make Christ and his thinking, the Word of God, our standard. Galatians 4.3, So also we, while we are children, were held in bondage under elementary things of the world. There was a time that we were held 
under the elemental things of the world. We were held in bondage. You see that? So Paul is even including himself in here. We, while we were children, were held under bondage. People who accept the gospel but never receive good, sound doctrinal teaching fall right back into their previous mindset of legalism so many times because they're not, they're not getting fed. They're not being nurtured. Anytime you give someone the gospel and they accept it, if it's physically possible in any way, shape, or form, you need to nurture them. You need to take them along because there's going to be those the Satan and his demons, he's going to bring people into their lives to try to say, oh, you're not believing that, are you? That simplistic idea that all you have to do is believe and you go to heaven? That easy believism? You haven't fallen for that, have you? And what's going to happen next? Well, they're brand new. They don't know how to counter that. So you have to try to mentor them the best you can and keep them in the Word. They know nothing of the spiritual dynamics and mechanics of the church age, so they try to live the Christian way of life by adhering to a system of morality. So many think that's what the Christian life is, is morality. Is it? Well, yes, it is. That's part of it, but a very small part compared to the spiritual part. We live... Uh, Christians today in the church age live, live a supernatural empowered life that's spiritual. And it may affect your morality, but it's far superior to just trying to be moral. Can anyone, by the way, manage morality 100% without being filled with the Holy Spirit? Can anybody do that? Another way I could say it, can anybody live by the Ten Commandments and not break them? No. They all break them. All these people who want to live by morality and they say, oh yeah, I live by the Ten Commandments. They don't know them, but they say that they live by them. It's just a lie. How do we know that? Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John one seven, or one eight. If we say that we have no sin, we have made him a liar, because all have sinned. Galatians chapter four verse nine. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Who's he talking to? Believers? Can believers revert back to their old ways? This is Paul. He is chewing them out. You turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things. And then he says, do you, want to be, do you desire to be enslaved all over again? What is he talking about here? Legalism. People trying to be saved or, or live the Christian life by a set of rules of morality. Colossians 2.20, if, and notice this is a first-class conditional clause, meaning if and it's true, if you have died with Christ to the elementary 
principles of the world. You see, we keep getting these elemental principles. Have you all died with Christ? Has, every, has all, everyone died with Christ? Were you there at the cross? No. How do you know that you died with Christ? Huh? How could, could you prove it? Where would you go to prove it? What book would you use? <laughs> you, I hope, I don't, can we at least agree that we would go to the Bible? Okay. Well, that's one right there, yeah. But there's another good one. I know you know where it is. Romans chapter 6. Remember Romans chapter 6? For you have been crucified with me. All this is positional. So he says, if and you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is it you were living in the, uh, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? This would be taboos and legalism. Now, what is it that's so significant that we have to connect the dots to know that we do not have to be enslaved to the elementary principles and to the taboos and the traditions and the decrees of mankind? What does it mean when it says you have died with Christ? What is it talking about? When What? Right. It's talking about positional. But see, when Christ died on the cross... He not only died for our sins, He also died unto our sins. And what that means is, He broke the back of our old sin nature. He didn't do away with it, but the absolute control over our lives is broken. Never again does it hold sway over us. The only reason you sin is because you, you fall into temptation and you're weak, but you decide to do it. You have the power not to sin because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the filling of the Holy Spirit. But there's one other thing that you have that we can't leave out of the mix. What is that? Volition. Free will. And as long as we have free will and Satan dangles this cotton candy sins out in front of us, we, we want to grab it. So he's saying, if, you, if you've already died these elemental principles, if when you accepted the gospel you understood that it was by grace alone, there's no way you could work for it, why are you trying to work for God's approval now? Why are you working to try to be accepted by God now? You've enslaved yourselves again into taboos and legalism. Is it wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols? The correct answer is depends. Is it wrong to drink alcoholic beverages? The right answer is it depends. You have the freedom to do so, but you've got to watch out for your weaker brother. That's another thing. Okay, the writer of Hebrews rebuked Believers who fell back into their old wheel ruts of elementary principles of the world instead of learning and applying the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Did you see the difference here? There's the elementary principles of the world and there's the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you choose which one do you want to live by. Did you all get that? 
And we're going to see it right here in Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. These are basic, fundamental doctrines. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. He's a baby believer. But solid food is for the mature who... Listen, turn to this. You've got to turn to this and underline these words. Underline this. I want you to underline this. I want you to circle it. But solid food is for the mature. Is that for the old people like us? (laughs) Well, the correct answer is depends. (laughs) It depends on... It's not the age... The chronological years, it's the spiritual growth he's talking about. Solid food, the doctrines that, that you can connect the dots. You can answer people's questions with the Word of God. You can turn in your Bible and say, yeah, this is, this is your answer right here. Solid food is for the mature. And how do they get to be mature? Look at this. Who because of practice. Practice, practice. You know what we're doing right now? We are practicing. It's a dry run. We're preparing ourselves when we're on the front lines to be able to stand firm for the faith, to be able to give the correct biblical answers to the questions and all the ideas out there. Who because of practice, what that means is taking in the Word consistently, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I know that older people like us, I keep saying that, I'm sorry, but it's true. Older people like us, people, the younger people tend to come and ask us questions. Do you get questions? Do you have Children, grandchildren, you have people coming to you and they say, what do you think about this? Now, if they know that you are a spiritually mature believer, they're going to be much more apt to take what you say to heart and to apply it. I can't tell you how many times I get, not daily, but nearly daily, I get questions. You you can't believe some of the questions that I get. People write out to the Internet and then... Ron forwards them to me. And sometimes it, do you know something about this ministry? Do you know about this organization? Do you know about this? Do you know about that? What, what is it that I must be able to do? I have to be able to discern between good and evil, and you have to do the same thing. And the only way that you're able to do that is have your senses trained by Practice. Practicing in the Word. Taking the Word in. Over and over again. That's how you do it. Okay, we're about to make a major change. I hope that there's a lot of sore toes out there. That we all have been at one time in the clutches of Satan and lived and walked by the oracles of the world, the principles, elementary principles of the world. 
But now there should be a difference. There should be a change. And it comes from that consistent practice in the Word, training your senses so that you can discern good and evil. And you have to do it because people are going to come to you. They're going to ask you questions. Even if they don't ask you questions, they're on the sideline and they're looking at you. Someone comes up and they are irate. They call you a name. They say something that is unjust. People are looking at you. How's he going, how is he or she going to handle this one? Are you going to handle it with grace? Like a royal family aristocrat? Are you going to get down on their level and sling mud with them? People are watching. And we have to be able to not only know how to discern good and evil, we also have to make the right decisions in the right circumstances. And that's what that's about. Okay, y'all ready? We're going to change gears. Are y'all ready to completely change gears? Any questions before I move on? Okay. Here's, I'll just bring that up higher where you can see it. You know, I've, I'm in this series especially, I'm teaching things that I've never seen anybody teach. Never even go to those areas. I never saw anyone go and talk about how people crave the experiential. They crave the scintillating and the emotional and all this. Um, and I, I've never seen anyone go over how to get the ball started when you're trying to give the gospel. And we want to remember that. We looked at all these different ideas of how you can kind of go from just chit-chat to actually talking about God, the Bible, salvation. We went over that. Well, this is another thing that I never saw anybody go over. But boy, is it great. Uh, it's not great because it came from me. That's not what I'm saying. But this came to me, I think it was, let's see, what's today? Uh, Tuesday. This came to me last night. Last night, I was sitting there thinking, I think, what am I, wh where am I going next on this? And boom, I had already asked the Lord to guide me in this. And this came into my mind. Look at, the, look at the title here. What God did in order to save mankind. Have you ever thought about that? What did God have to do in able to save our sorry souls? How, what did He have to do? And I started thinking about this, and it just progresses and We'll just. Are y'all ready to jump into it? We only have a few minutes, but we'll get at least a little ways. What God did in order to save man, mankind. Most people rarely, if ever, think about the many things God chose to do in order to provide eternal salvation for mankind. Notice I said chose to do. God didn't have to do anything. He's sovereign. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that had to be absolutely necessary. And this kind of sets it up as I start here. Um, the first thing that comes to mind when we start to meditate on all He did in order to save us is His astounding love that He has for us. That's what, as I start, was thinking through in my mind, I started putting these down on paper, I started thinking, man, astounding love for God to do what He did. And He had to do a lot in order to save us. So let's see what the first point is. Okay. First point. 
God is perfect in every way, and it is impossible for Him to compromise His perfect essence. We all understand that. This means that He cannot overlook sin. He must judge it. If God didn't act, Adam and Eve and all of their descendants would die and spend eternity in the lake of fire. Have you ever thought of that? They would have lived forever had they not fallen. All these thousands of years between the time, the, let's, let's say, the day before they ate of the fruit, and now, if they had not ate and still hadn't ate to this point, all these, I don't know what, 6,000 years or whatever it is, they would still be in the garden. They would not have aged one bit. They would still be picking kumquats or whatever it is they ate and dressing the garden. That's what would have happened. But when they fell, everything, everything changed. Even the earth itself changed, didn't it? And if God had done nothing, if He would have said, Okay, well, <laughs> you know, I gave you volition. Look what you did with it. You know that I'm just. You know that I can't overlook this. The lake of fire was already created for Satan and his angels, so sorry. Now, but, but think this through a little further. They wouldn't, when they ate of the fruit, God said you're going to die. But they didn't die physically, did they? That wasn't their penalty. It wasn't that if you eat of this fruit, if you disobey me, you're going to croak. You're going to die the instant you ate it, just as if it was arsenic in it. That's not what happened, was it? They died spiritually instantly. Their relationship with God was broken. Adam lived over 900 years. What happened during those 900 years? He had a lot of offsprings, didn't he? Well, the same thing would apply to them. And so once this thing starts going and the population starts to grow, and you had, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands, millions of people up until the flood, if God had not acted, if it wasn't part of His plan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to send the seed of the woman to take care of the sin problem, what would have happened to all these people? Lake of fire. They were so exceedingly wicked that God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And who interceded? Who was it? Moses. Oh, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Noah. See, you, you, you can get egg on your face and just move on. I do it all the time. So don't be afraid to guess. Noah. Noah found favor in the sight of God. And so God could have um, got, you know, done away with it. So now what happens? Here they have eight people that survive. And he starts over. How many people we have today? I don't know. How many people have there been from Adam and Eve? Uh, a couple of zillion, okay? Whatever the number is, if God did not act, where would they all go? Lake of fire. You see how important this first point is when you start, just stop and think about it? Did God have to act? No. But when He decided to save mankind, it set in motion... I've got 13 points, major points. There's probably no count how, how many sub-points. He had to do so many things that we never even think about in order to accomplish our so great salvation. Point two, 
The only way they could be saved was for someone perfect to take their punishment. Someone had to die spiritually in their place. The substitute had to be perfect because if he was guilty of any sin, he would be disqualified to die in the place of others and his death would be a just penalty for his own sins. You see that? So whoever it was had to be perfect. Already we've got another huge problem, don't we? Okay, it gets much worse. Just tune in. Stay tuned. No human being could be the substitute for fallen mankind because all mankind is condemned for Adam's original sin, has an old sin nature, and is guilty of personal sins. Right? Furthermore, God could not die as a substitute in man's place because deity cannot die. Oh man, we got a problem, don't we? It's got to be a perfect substitute. Man is fallen. He's got a fallen nature. He's got all this baggage with him. He can't do it. And God can't do it because God can't die. It's like an insolvable problem, doesn't it? Point four. It would seem impossible to save mankind. No human would ever be qualified to be our substitute because of sin. And God would be unable to be the substitute because He cannot die. Can God solve this problem? <laughs> of course. Can God unscramble eggs? Yeah, He can do it. Okay, so what are we gonna what do we have here? Okay, God's solution was one that no one expected. Not even Adam and Eve. No elect or fallen angel, not even Satan, suspected what God would do. Jesus Christ would become the God-man. That was the solution. You know, when God decided to create the earth and He was going to put uh, Adam on it, you know, in Genesis, and then he created Eve, and you have them in the garden. And Satan was just sitting there biding his time, wasn't he? He waited till he's the most uh, propitious time, and he goes up to Eve, and he's slithering, devious wickedness, and he deceives her. And when she took that bite of that apple, he thought, <coughs> I got him now. And here's Adam. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know, it, sounds, it seems to me like he might have just been standing there. I mean, here he has this serpent talking to his wife. And by the way, what did Satan do? What was the first thing? Hath God not said? Ask him a question, didn't he? He's smart. Yeah, he's twisted. Well, he lied. And so then Adam took it, took it, and he ate of it. Now, what do you, Satan thought, oh, Glory, hallelujah. I don't know if he says glory, hallelujah, but he was so happy. Oh, man, I got it now. I'm not going to the lake of fire. I'm going to conquer God. Because now they're fallen. See, everything that I'm saying here, Satan already knew. He knew that man couldn't save himself. He knew that God couldn't die. And so that was the penalty, was death. So he had them, right? And then... When Genesis 3.15 came around, the party was over for Satan, wasn't it? 
That's the first mention of the promise of a Savior in the Bible in Genesis 3.15. No one thought that Jesus Christ, the Creator of the universe, Almighty God Himself, would be so condescending, would condescend to the point to where He would become a man. And what is a man? Lower than angels. I mean, you would think, well, certainly He would become a glorious angel. I mean, he would just, the majesty would make Satan look like a little Boy Scout. And yet he came as a man. And Satan thought, oh, never happened. And when he found out that Jesus Christ was going to be born the God man, uh, I don't know what he felt, but uh, it, it, the celebration was over. Let's put it that way. And God had to think of this in eternity past. And Jesus Christ had to volunteer to become a lower than the angel, measly man. But He's also God. And we'll pick this up next time. There's so many questions when you slow down and you look at this. We're going to get in some meat. Are you all ready for some meat next time? Huh? It's didn't going to be milk. Y'all are past milk. We're going to get into the hypostatic union. Not a whole lot. We're going to just delve in it a little bit so make sure you know what it's about. Because without the hypostatic union, you would have no salvation. In fact, there's what? Eight more points that, that, that God had to choose to do these things in order for us to be saved. And when you look back on these things of what God in His matchless wisdom, the only thing that maybe eclipses His, His omniscience, all-knowing, is His phenomenal love for us, that He would do all this in order to save us. What a God. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank You for allowing us to be here we thank You for Your mighty Word that lives and abides forever. We thank You for the opportunity to recognize that we fight against principalities and powers of the air that we can't see. We also recognize that we are not powerless because we operate on the Holy Spirit's power when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We thank You that we can Pause and look at these things that you had to do. Well, you didn't have to. You chose to do on our behalf in order to provide our so great salvation. And that we would be able to give you praise and glory and have a proper appreciation for who and what you are. And we thank you for this and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.